0: Everybody, it's an exciting to see some new faces. Um, some faces that, unfortunately, I've seen at school and completely forgot. Some from Mexico, some from Jackson. Not sure where you're from, but I'm gonna guess Jackson. <laughs> yeah. All right. Allegedly Northwest lies. Uh, but good to see you guys all tonight. Um, for those of you that were here last week, we're starting a. Uh, it's about a seven-eight week series on the will of God. Um, So last week we kind of laid the foundation of going through that phrase, will of God, what that means when it shows up in the Bible, and then practically how it applies to our life. And we looked at seven specific wills in the Bible that God specifically puts in there. This is my will for your life, or this is the will of God, or God is not willing, which is the one we're going to be looking at tonight. There's seven specific things in the New Testament that God says, it is my will that you fulfill these, that you obey these, that you practice these in your life Um, and just to touch a little bit on the review um, you know I got went back to sort of my testimony and how these hit me when I was in high school I was in a position where I really wanted to hear from God specifically what he wanted from my life you know how many in here wish you knew you know what you what job God wants you to have what spouse God wants you to marry all those things you want that to be clearly laid out nobody wants to be confused and just enter into it blindly and say, well, I hope this is what God wants. I'm, I'm such a risk averter. I do not like jumping into unknown situations. I don't like taking risks. I like knowing exactly what I'm doing, and it can be to a fault. But in this area, it can be very comforting knowing that when you follow these wills, when you're doing these things that God commands you to do, he makes it very clear. He brings a lot of the social aspects of your life. It's like he lays them out in front of you and divides them very clearly. You'll find yourself in situations in life by obeying these that you didn't think you would have. Um, and the one we're going to look at tonight is extremely important, um, and that's to be repentant. Um, so the key verse, we're not going to turn there, it's on your sheet, just for time's sake, is Second uh, Peter 3.9. Can I have someone go ahead and read that? Carson. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance I love that verse one of my favorite verses in the bible what does that part though not willing that any should perish mean does that mean that he's not willing so it's god's will so nobody is going to perish everyone's going to come to repentance because there's people out there that believe that that everyone's going to get saved no what does that mean not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance make it a little more practical i'm not willing i'm not willing that my kids disobey me but that they would obey me that they would love me that they would do it with an obedient heart yes emily it's not like your desire or intention. yeah it's not my will for their life the purpose that i want them to fulfill is to obey me to love me to fulfill the will that God has laid on my heart for them. And it's the same thing with God. God is not willing that any should perish. So how many is any? Everybody in the world. So is anyone left out? No. So you can take this verse and you can apply it to anybody you come in contact with. Again, it goes against garbage Calvinistic doctrine that says God only specifically chose people that he died for. Why would he do that if he wasn't willing that any should perish? Was his blood not enough? Did he only love a certain amount? No, God wants everybody to come to repentance. He's not willing that any should perish. But it's just like in the garden, it's a choice. And as we'll see with all these wills, they're all a choice. But he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So repentance, I actually put the definition on your sheet this week. Um, Real penitence, or to explain that a little further, sorrow or deep contrition... For sin, deep pain and sin, an offense and dishonor to God, a violation of his holy law, and is accompanied and followed by amendment of life. What does that mean, amendment? Go back to your government and history class. Amendment of life. Carson. Yeah, change. Okay, we have the amendments. They're changes. Okay, it's followed by an amendment of life. Repentance is a change of mind or a conversion from sin to God. Who can give me a real quick... Picture very simply if you had to explain repentance to a five year old, how would you do it, Brandon? Okay, maybe a little 180. Yep, yeah, you're going in one direction. Repentance is okay, I'm gonna go the opposite direction, and I constantly am laying that out. I explain it to Matthew, he's four, so it can be a little difficult for those gears to connect, but I'll explain it to Emma. I'm like, when you're in this situation, you're going down this road of disobeying me, of beating your brother up or whatever she's doing, I'm like, repentance is saying, oh, yeah, this this isn't right. This is not what my father would want me to do. This is not what my mother would want me to do. This is not what God wants me to do. I love my brother. And it's doing the opposite. In that, in that moment, you're hating your brother. What do you do? Well, you start loving him. You make it right. You restore that fellowship. Any situation that you have that you're doing God wrong, that you're doing someone wrong, that you're sinning against God, there was always a 180 flip. There was always a repentant heart, a way of escape that God has for you, a space of grace. And then you get in too far, like Emma does quite frequently, and then she ends up getting her butt beat. And I'm hoping that that drives that foolishness out of her heart, that she can look back on that and it will create in her a repentant heart. You don't want God to have to spank you. I always tell her that. God's spankings hurt much more. I, Funny story. Brandy will probably gasp a little bit. I'm sitting in the... Living room today, trying to nap, because like I said, I was up till like 2.30 in the morning. The time just keeps getting longer as I say it. Um, I was up very, very late, so I was tired, and all of a sudden she comes in, she, she's got a paper towel on her finger. She's like, Daddy, I got, a, I got blood on my finger. I'm like, okay, whatever. She takes it off, and it's like gushing, and I'm like, what did you do? She's like, well, I was, I, I grabbed some strawberry, no, chicken. She grabbed chicken out of the fridge and was cutting some up with a pretty sharp knife. And she like filleted like a piece of her finger. She's like, yeah, I cut it. I'm like, okay, now, you know, not to play with the knives, but it was a good picture of God uses this to remind you so that when you enter into that situation again, you can remember and turn from that and say, yeah, I shouldn't be doing that. And we had a parallel Matt burn his hand on a pan and you know, God uses those things to chastise, to spank, to remind you. To when you go into those situations to turn, it's the same thing with a spanking. So, what are you know? Think of some things that God uses in your life to create in you a repentant heart. A lot of times, those costs, those humiliating circumstances, when you have sinned, is really God's grace to make it so that you never want to go back there again. It was funny. Matt wanted her to cut up some chicken later for him. She's like, "I ain't doing that." It's like immediately in her heart she knows. And I can think of instances in my life when you apply that spiritually that. I'm like, I never want to do that again. I never want to go back to that situation that I was in. It cost me and it cut deep. And it's really, it's God's grace that I went through that then now, so it doesn't still affect me now. Yeah, it sucked then. Humiliating then dealing with that. Hurt a lot of people. But God was very good to me to create in, the, in me that repentant heart that I'm like, yeah, I never want to go back to that. So repentance, though, it's a, it's a change of mind. It's a conversion from sin to God. It's making that change. We're not going to look at these verses. But in Ezekiel, there's constantly, it's saying, repent and turn yourselves from your idols. Repent, turn, repent, turn. There's always that turning away from something unto God. Turning away from whatever it is that has your heart unto God. And we're not going to go there, but in Acts 26, 20, it says that they should repent and turn to God and do works, meet for repentance. Those are kind of verses where we get the definition of repentance where that comes from turn to god it's that turning motion okay it's not just that that sorry that guilt yet you continue to do it because of how it makes you feel it's that no i love my father and i don't want to do this anymore and it's that turning it's that changing of direction you were going south now you're going north all right so note a modern definition of repentance like i just said leaves out the change of mind in life and simply means to be sorry Man, how fruitless and vain is sorry! That's so easy, you know. Talk is cheap. You can anybody can say anything, but just to be sorry, and we wonder why marriages—it's got to be up over sixty percent now—and in divorce or something absurd. And I even saw a statistic, or I think it was shared during the missions conference too, that marriages in churches up over fifty percent end in divorce. It's crazy, but a lot of it goes back to this bullcrap sorry and these people wanting someone to love them so much they buy into it and there's never a repentant heart there's never a change of life vet who you're going to marry vet whoever you're going to date give it to God so that you can see those things very very clearly let him open your eyes to those things that it's not just some sorrowful guilt-filled heart that they have a repentant heart that they've turned from that life so there's two types of repentance Alright, so point number one, it's going to be at salvation, which most of you guys are familiar with. But if you are, still let it be new to you. And If you've never heard those things before, perk your ears up. And point number two is going to be daily repentance. So point number one, at salvation. Everybody flip over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. It's like it drops 10 degrees by having that door open. It feels really good. Whoa, what was that? That's scary. All right, Acts 17, we're going to start in verse 30. It says, in the times of this ignorance, God winked at. So there, there was a time of ignorance that God gave them over to themselves, that God allowed them to fulfill their own lusts. Okay, winked at, kind of ignored, allowed it to happen. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. By that, man, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Listen, there's coming a day that you're going to be judged. Lost or saved, there is still a judgment waiting for you on the other side. God's command is that all would repent. So that the judgment you face is going to be a much sweeter judgment. They're still going to be lost because you're still going to look back and be like, man, why didn't I do more for Jesus Christ? But you're not going to be judged against your works and God's perfections and be sentenced to hell for all of eternity. Anybody know Hebrews 9.27 by heart? Sam. Appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Yep. Yeah. But... And, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. We all have an appointment. I like, I love how God phrases that. It's appointed unto men. You know when you go like to the dentist. I hope you guys go to the dentist. <laughs> and after, you know, if you go twice a year, when you're leaving, they're like, "Hey, we want to schedule you for your next one." And what do they give you? Toothbrush. <laughs> yeah, that fits with the verse. Yeah, they give you, they give you a little appointment card because we always forget, and I still forget. and That appointment card goes right in the back of my car. But they give you an appointment card. You have an appointment to come back. You all have a spiritual appointment card out there somewhere. That's one thing I do not want to know. Is the I like planning, but I don't want I don't want to know when I'm going to die. But we all have an appointment, and as it is appointed unto men, once to die. We all have an appointment unto death. It's kind of morbid to think about, but it's one of the few perfect statistics. Ten out of ten people are going to die. They haven't figured out immortality yet. Everybody dies yet, Carson. I'm still working on it. <laughs> ten out of ten people are gonna die. They haven't fi- figured out physical immortality. Is that good? Is that work? I, I thought it was funny that you added "yet." Yeah, that's why people are doing freezing. I know it's Walt Disney. Ten out of ten people die. What's waiting for you on eternity? Have you repented of your sinful state unto Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you turned from your will and accepted God's will for your life, called out to Jesus Christ to save you? Because if you haven't, that appointment is going to be very, very, very bad. The Bible says there's two judgments. You have the judgment seat of Christ, where every believer is going to stand up before in front of God. And he's going to be judged according to what he did with what God gave him. And there's going to be crowns. We're still going to suffer loss because there's still... You're, there's, there's nobody here that has done everything that God has called them to do. There's still going to be regret. There's still going to be looking back on me like, man, why didn't I witness to that person? Why wasn't I bolder? Our perspective, man, think of what your perspective is going to be when you enter into eternity, knowing that you can never come back to this spot. And then you have the great white throne judgment where you have God's perfection, this book, and then all your sinful doings. And if you're guilty in one, the Bible says you're guilty of all. And that's when he says, depart in everlasting fire. Two judgments. We all have an appointment. We can control our appointment. Which one is yours? Flip over to Acts chapter 20. Can I have somebody read verse 21? All right. Are you going to do it, Jared, or are you going to, like, read eight verses? All right. Here we go. Buckle up. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, and I love how that one encompasses everyone. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Greek, does not matter, which, again, encompasses everyone. Repentance is required. There's no difference between us and the Jew right now. They get to heaven, they get saved the same way that we do. It's through repentance. It's through calling unto Jesus Christ to save you. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is probably one of the best definitions of true repentance, true conviction in the Bible. So this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church. Who can tell me a little bit about the Corinthian church? They were All right. <laughs> I'll give you that. That's more than anybody else said. So Paul wrote a letter. Book. Emily? Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. I mean, like, Paul's first letter to them is just a giant rebuke of everything they're doing wrong. Yep. So they were clearly into some. <laughs> Not so great stuff. Well dis- disgusting <laughs> stuff. And then Second Corinthians was what? Oh, Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> Emily too. Yeah, it's like a commendation. Bad cop, good cop. Actually, that's a horrible analogy. (laughs) You you have a, a, uh, you know, he came against them in 1 Corinthians. And then we'll see here in 2 Corinthians their heart attitude towards that letter. How they reacted. Look in verse 9. It says, Now I rejoice not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repentant of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. And man, is that true. And we're going to look at some examples tonight under the daily repentance. Really just how true that is. When you have a repentant heart towards God in your life, it really leads you to a life. It leads you to salvation eternally when you get saved. But then really salvation practically. It saves you from that situation. That's the only way that you can get out of specific sins That's the only way you can get out of sins is by legitimate repentance. When you go through that cycle, raise your hand if you've been in that guilt cycle. You're like, God, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do this again. And you make that covenant, you make that vow. Then the next day you're like, gosh dang it, I'm here again. And then you do it again, and you do it again. How defeating is that? You're like, man, am I even saved? I mean, it can feel like that. And that's Satan's plan to keep you in that vicious cycle. You know the thing that breaks that cycle? repentance. When you just say, God, I've had enough. I'm done. I don't care what it costs me at this point. I'm done. It's the only way I can get out of this. And you know what it does? That brokenness, that repentance, it's salvation. It saves you from that situation. When you're sorry, it just leads to death because you keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And you're hiding it from your youth leaders. You're hiding it from your parents. You're hiding it from your friends. A lot of times that godly repentance involves not just sharing it between you and God, but sharing it between your parents, sharing it between your friends. You really want to go into repentance, a true repentant attitude, all in, you're making sure that you're setting the stakes to where you can't fail. Complete turning. Remember, it's 180 degrees. But it's salvation, and it saved this Corinthian church. So he can look at them and say, wow, what I told you in 1 Corinthians, you obeyed those things. It cut right to your heart. Who in here likes receiving rebuke? No. Especially from people that you're like, wow, you could at least try to make that delicate. <laughs> yeah, Andy. <laughs> I'm fairly delicate. Oh, I'm compared to Andy. You're closer me you, you know who's, You're rubbing off. You know who does a phenomenal job at rebuking without even realizing that, without that other party realizing they're being rebuked, is Jay Boffman. I've told him that countless times where we'd sit down for discipleship. We'd come to the end and be like, man, you just kind of, you like sliced and diced me with the sword and I don't even know I'm bleeding yet. The way he did it just with love, and, and it's twofold. When you have a heart that really wants to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and you're willing to repent from anything and it's just ignorance and someone reveals it to you, like, and they come to you with love and they show you the error of your ways and you're like, oh, yeah, It's so much easy. It's so much easier to correct somebody with a willing heart. It's when you approach somebody who's prideful, set in their ways, their minds already made up, and you're rebuking them, and they're like, Yeah, you're crazy. You don't see anything. That's when it's a challenge. How well do you receive rebuke? How well do you receive criticism? How well do you receive correction? That really reveals a lot of your heart of repentance. This Corinthian church, despite the horrific sin, and I mean nasty sin like sons sleeping with their stepmoms or moms, however you want to look, just weird, weird stuff. They received the words of Paul. They received the words of God, and they repented. What's, what are some sins in your life that if somebody came to you and said, you need to knock that off right now, and you knew they loved you, you knew they cared about you, how would you react? Would you have an easy time turning away from that, or would you buckle down and be like, well, look at the things that you're doing and, compl- and want to make, make it about the other party. We, we do that so often. Gosh, we do that as humans. Even like 40, 50, and 60-year-old men at my job, that's all they do. Deflection, deflect. Anytime you bring accountability, it only sucks when you're not doing your job. Then accountability comes, it exposes the fault, and they're like, yeah, but look at what they're doing so that they can keep being lazy over here. <clears throat> Don't be that kind of person. You might think you're fooling people, but you're not. And it drives us nuts because you'll never grow. You'll never get beyond that. Have a repentant heart. With godly sorrow, it worketh repentance, not to be repented of. This worldly sorrow, this worldly sorriness leads to death because you never get out of that cycle. Never get out of that situation. It will consume you. Now flip over to Romans chapter 10. I don't know why I didn't put that after 2 Corinthians. would have been a night or before it. Nice flow. I'm OCD. Alright. Extremely familiar verses for those of you that use Romans Road to witness. These should be very deep down in your heart. I want you to look at these verses. So verse 9 and 10. This really brings this whole at salvation though home. Verse 9 That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That first part in verse 9 though is what I want to focus on. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus So before you get saved who is your Lord? I'll accept two answers. Yeah, your flesh, Satan this world. You don't God does not have control of your life. Satan has his bidding. Your flesh has its bidding. This world has its bidding. And all three of those, the three of monster, are controlling what you do. But ultimately, you are in control. You're choosing what you do to fulfill yourself, to make yourself feel good. Verse 9 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. When you get saved, who becomes your Lord? Jesus Christ. He ought to be the one sitting on your throne with your reins directing you where you go. So think about that practically, or spiritually rather. At salvation, you were in charge. You did a complete 180, and God became your Lord. Jesus Christ became your Lord. Your life went from pleasing your physical self to pleasing that physical or that spiritual eternity for Jesus Christ. That Lordship, who's in control of your life, did a complete 180. Jesus Christ became your Lord. Can you sit in here and say that, that that's true in your life? Think about that. Is Jesus Christ your Lord today? Do you know him? Do you know him intimately? Have you repented of your sinful state itself, not just of sins in your life, but of who you are as a human being and given your whole life over to Jesus Christ and called upon him to save you? Second Peter 3.9, that's exactly what that's talking about. When it comes down to salvation, the Lord is not willing that any should perish. But that all should come to repentance. He's not willing that any. He wants everyone to come to repentance. And this is how you do it. You allow Jesus Christ to be your Lord. You realize yourself in your sinful state and you give it all up. You say, it's not worth living for the now. I want to live for the future. I've drawn it up there, little brackets. I'm just going to do it because I like doing it. I don't care if you guys don't, but it is what it is. You know, what's the average life? 70 plus 7 years-ish. Although people are living ridiculous amounts of years. I hope I don't. And then anybody know what that is? Infinity. Yeah, infinity. What well, well, I don't know. I don't know what they're teaching you guys now with common core crap. So this is you guys right now. And this is such this is not drawn to scale because if this was really eternity, infinity, you wouldn't even be able to see those brackets. The day you got saved, you quit investing in this, really this figment anymore. And you started investing in this. You started investing in the souls of men. You started investing in the word of God. You started investing in your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a whole 180. You're not investing in this physical anymore. You're investing in the spiritual. What do you find yourself investing in? Even if you're saved. You know, I thought about this. If you got saved and you're not walking with the Lord in your whole life and you're kind of just skating by your life really just makes God want to vomit, you really want to enter into heaven being not even having any clue who Jesus Christ is. You see the scars on his hand. You see the scars on his back and his feet. And you're like, yeah, you saved me, but then I just kind of kicked you to the curb. And that's really the first time you actually understand who he is As heaven. I don't want that. I, I don't want that to be me. I don't want that to be you guys. We can know exactly who he is right now. We can start investing in this and living our repentant life now. So that's at salvation. Again, I challenge you, if that's something that you're confident in, awesome. Really pay attention to point number two then, daily repentance. If that's not true about you, I challenge you to really consider these things. Talk to somebody about it. Eternity is a long time to be wishing that you could come back to this situation right now and make that choice. So point number two, daily repentance. Flip over to Revelation chapter 2. So, who can tell me real quick, Revelation 2 and 3, what's going on here? Alana? Uh, Paul, or not Paul, uh, John. I, I, I was close. Yeah. Uh, John is writing to the seven churches, and they were like physical churches that, you know, like seven physical churches, but they also represent like the seven church ages. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And he's explaining what they did good. And the things that they needed to do better, things they needed to do right, things that he commended them for, things that he condemned them for. But I want you to look at a couple phrases here. So first off, we're going to look at the church of Ephesus. So this first church period. Okay, you guys remember the big thing that they did wrong? Emily. That, like, left their first love. Yep. Yeah, you can see that right at the end of verse 4, chapter 2. It says, Nevertheless, I have someone against thee because thou hast left thy first love. All right, and then verse 5, look at the recipe or the uh, prescription. That's better, not recipe. We're not cooking. Verse 5, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove that candlestick out of his place. Except thou repent. I'm telling you, that's it. That's the solution to any situation that you found yourself in. Remember your first works. Remember that feeling when you got saved. Remember the excitement. Just remember what God has saved you from. Or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove that candlestick out of his place. You guys remember what I hit on last week a little bit? You know, what gives you the right to continue to exist on this earth? How are you justifying your existence? What, What reasons are you giving God to continue to give you breath? If you're not, just repent. Turn from whatever garbage that you've, you're involved in and start investing in eternity. Give God a reason. Give, give God bragging rights up in heaven that He can look down on, on you and say, Hast thou considered my servant? Fill in the blank. Don't be someone that God looks down on and He's like, Oh my gosh. You know, that's how I look at the White House right now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I like want to gouge my eyes out. It's embarrassing. But, you know, we can do the same thing with God. It's easy for us to point out obvious things, but we have been saved from an eternity in hell, and we can do the same exact things. And really, we can do worse because we have the answers. We have the cure to this spiritual cancer. Don't make God disappointed. Flip over to chapter 3. We're going to look at our glorious church age. Same command here. Not a whole lot of good to say and lay out to see it, but there is one, one solution. Verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. When you're involved in sin, again, like I said earlier, it is God's grace when it is miserable for you, when it hurts When it's destroying you inside. You know why it's God's grace? Because he loves you and he wants you out of it. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. If you're in those situations and it's easy to sin and you feel guilty, again, you got to be able to discern between guilt and true conviction from the Holy Spirit. When you're in that situation and you're just guilty coasting by, I would challenge you, are you really a son of God? You can be and you can just sear away that conscience. And you have tuned it out so much. You've seared it like with a hot iron, the Bible says, to where you don't even hear God's voice anymore. Now that's a scary place to be. But count yourself very blessed that when you're in those situations, God, the Holy Spirit is grieved within you. He doesn't want you to live like that because he loves you. Same conversation I have with my kids when they get a spanking. They don't get it yet. But I always say, why is daddy spanking you? Because I love you. I don't want you to keep making these mistakes. I don't want you to wind up dead. I don't want you to just have a life that's fulfilling yourself and you stand before God and you're like, oh crap. I love you too much to just give you over to yourself. And it's the same thing with God. He loves you way too much than to just let you destroy your life. It's like when you see a little kid going up to you know, a, a busy intersection. You just say, well, good luck. And you just watch and then they get plowed over or do you run over and you're like knock it off and you bring them back you spank them you, you show them the pain you give them a glimpse of what that would have cost them so that they don't do that again it's the same thing with God God allows you to go through some things so that you can remember you can get a little taste of what that sin actually is fulfilled I'll give you guys an example you know it's like pornography you get exposed into that and you start dabbling with it and then you get exposed when you're in high school and you're like wow this is yeah pretty perverted this is nasty stuff and it hurts hurts your parents hurts your friends hurts whoever god's giving you a little feeling of what it would be like if that sin fully manifested itself 10 15 20 years down the road when you're married with three kids and you go and commit an aff- commit adultery you go and have an affair which one do you want to experience do you want to experience a humiliation when you're in your high school or do you want to experience the marital issues and the, your kids now, they want to have nothing to do with God because you're just a complete laughing stock. You're a walking hypocrite. Which pain do you want to feel? I'd rather feel the pain while I'm in high school. And it's God's grace. He's chasing you. He's rebuking you. He's trying to protect you from what's waiting down the road. But when you're in high school, it can just feel like that's it. You're like, oh, I'm never going to get out of this. See the work that God is doing and repent then where that problem is waiting for you down the road. But it's God's grace that he rebukes you. It's God's grace that he chastises you because he loves you, because he wants to protect you from what's waiting for you down the road. Be very sensitive to that grieving of the Holy Spirit. Obey it and repent. Turn. For the saint or Christian, on your back on your study sheet, repentance is a daily occurrence and result of a surrendered heart in life to Christ fully submitted to his will as you fear and obey him. We're not going to go there for time's sake, but in Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about when Isaiah is faced before God and he sees himself as who he is. He says, God, I am undone. I have no business being in your presence. We can feel so high and mighty sometimes that we're like, you know what, we're doing all right. I mean, look look at Cameron. Look at Andy. Look at Bobby. Look at those idiots. Look at the things they're doing. I don't do those things. I don't sound like that. I got it good. I got news for you. We're all sinful creatures in front of God. On our best day, we are filthy rags that makes one, that makes God want to vomit. But He still loves you. Don't get high-minded. Realize who you are before God, and that should cause you to repent quickly and often, all the time. So we got some examples here. I kind of want to walk through. Um, flip over to Acts chapter eight. We got some good examples, and we got well, we really got one good example. Some One neutral example and then a couple bad ones. Try and identify with one of these guys. Who are you? So we're going to start with Simon in Acts chapter 8. So this dude gets saved. Awesome, right? Let's start in verse 9 says, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. That guy's never getting saved, right? What a freak involved in witchcraft. No way. Verse 10, To whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. Man, what a power trip this guy's on. Verse 11, And to him they had regard, because that of long time he had bewitched them with sorceries. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They saw the real deal. They're like, yeah, this guy's a fraud. Verse 13, Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they were come down prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. Remember Simon, he was involved in this sorcery, and he's like, that's pretty cool what they're doing. I got news for you. you saved people can have selfish motives just like lost people. He's like, man, I, I kind of want to do what they're doing. Not evil motives, but he's like, I want part of this. Verse 18, And When Simon saw that through laying on, the apostle, laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, He offered them money. Sounds right. Saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Pretty good idea, right? Give you a hundred bucks, give me that gift, I'll start healing people. Be awesome. We can do this together. No, that sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? That's not how God works. We heard it all during the missions conference. Does God need our money? No, He needs our heart. Verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, <clears throat> because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy what heart is not right in the sight of God. What's the solution? Repent, verse 22, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. So he had this evil thought, and he's like, you know what? Hey, I'll give you this money. Can I have this gift that you got? And Peter rebukes him sharply. Again, be very sensitive to rebuking. I don't think Simon, especially being as early on in his faith, knew that what he was doing was wrong. He's brought up in this sorcery, money-filled life, and he's like, okay, I got money. Yeah, that's the answer to everything, right? Let's, Let's give them more money, and they'll give it to me. Peter's like, no, that's not right at all. Your heart's way off. It doesn't come from money. It's not something physical. It's something spiritual between you and God. Your heart is messed up. If somebody gave you sharp rebuke like that, how would you respond? Would you repent? Would you say, you know what? You're right. I sinned against God. I need to get my heart right. God doesn't want my money. He wants my heart. <clears throat> how would you respond? But the solution, it's to repent. You're going to see that common theme. Flip over to Matthew chapter 26. going to camp out there for a little bit. <clears throat> Gosh, COVID is destroying me. It was a joke. I don't have COVID. I'm going to get calls from your parents. I know. I can't even taste this water. <clears throat> I don't know what it is, though. It's probably COVID. All right, so these next three, three and a half, roughly, are going to be uh, pretty familiar for you. Matthew chapter 26, let's jump down to 56. It says, but all this was done. Yeah, I'm right, okay. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. And they that had laid hold on Jesus led him away to something, fist? The high priest, Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Remember, what was? What did Jesus prophesy about Peter? He's going to deny him three times, wasn't he? Peter's like, oh, Lord, I would never do that. No way. Not going to happen. But notice it's already starting. Jesus is going in, and what does it say? Peter's afar off, just watching I can guarantee you that's in the back of his mind. And he's seeing this whole government come against Jesus. It's easy for us to read this and be like, Dude, Peter, why are you abandoning your man? But how many times have you guys been in a situation where somebody's getting persecuted, somebody's getting bullied, somebody's, somebody's facing some kind of persecution. And you're like, you know what? It's going to be easier just to bow out of this one. It's very easy to criticize Peter, but think about what he was up against. It does not justify at all what he did. But God was very gracious to him. Flip over to Matthew. We're going to stay here, but jump down to verse 69 and see how this unfolds. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. When he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them, unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, swearing. I do not know the man. I swear that wasn't me. Verse 73, And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou also art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. And immediately the cock crew. Remember, before that cock crowed, he was going to deny Jesus three times. Verse 75, man, this verse gives me chills. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. There's another account where he saw Jesus. Think about that situation. You're like, I would never, Jesus. Remember that cycle of guilt? God, I won't do this. No, I would never do this. Yep, just did it. Did it three times. God said three times. Yep, check, check, check. But did G- did Peter stay in this state? of bitter weeping of bitter guilt of bitter depression no he goes on to live a very victorious life for Jesus Christ and he never denies him again think about how Peter dies are you guys familiar with how he's martyred Yeah. yeah so Jesus was crucified Peter was crucified but didn't think he was worthy to be killed the same way that Christ was and he was crucified upside down Think about it, he didn't deny Jesus Christ anymore after that. He denied Jesus, and then he said, you know what, I'm done with that. Repented 180 degrees, and I guarantee you he never did it again. That's repentance. That's a complete change. That's going from that cycle that you were in and saying, Jesus, I am so sorry. You don't deserve that. And it can still cost you, doesn't mean your life's gonna get easier. Peter's life was rough after that. But man, can you imagine when he entered into heaven and he saw Jesus? And he'd be like, did you see that though? I didn't deny your name. You see what they did? There was still regret. But can you imagine that excitement though when he saw Jesus? Rather than when they came to him and they were going to crucify him and kill him and all that. He's like, and he renounces his name. He could have done that, but he didn't. We have that opportunity every single day. Now let's look at a very poor example. Look down in verse 1 of chapter 27. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself. Did he repent to Jesus Christ? No, to himself. And brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned, and then I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. We don't care. Can you imagine that feeling? All of a sudden his humanity kicks in, he's like, I don't want it, I don't want it, get it out of here. Take take the money. I'm like, who are, we, who are you? Little sidestep, anytime you're doing the work of the devil, the work of the world, the work of your flesh, they're always going to turn on you. There's never a happy ending with that story. Numbers verse five, and he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Remember those verses in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10? Godly penance leadeth to salvation. Peter's life was forever changed. I guarantee you it saved his entire life practically to have a successful life living for Jesus Christ. Judas, that godly, lack of godly sorrow, that human sorrow, that sorry that was outside of God's will, that selfish guilt, it led straight to his death. Which one do you find yourself siding with? The human sorrow, it's very easy to feel sorry for yourself for whatever situation you're in. But the godly sorrow, when you realize, no, I, I don't care how this makes me feel, I care about how it makes Jesus Christ feel. And then Samson, yeah. Let's just jump over to it because there's a lot going on there. Let's go to Judges chapter 13. And then we are going to end. I need a drinking fountain in this class? I'm all out. No, I'm okay. We're getting. It's like people feeling bad for me. It's that it's that godly sorrow. That was extremely poor taste. Judges 13. I should probably get there. Judges 13. All right, so here's who here is familiar with Samson? I'm going to buzz through this. Can somebody give me a, just a quick overview of Samson? He had long hair, yeah. Connor. One of the strongest men alive. He was. He was pretty strong. Remember his strength came from his hair. His hair. Seven yeah, all you guys, all you boys. That's why they got long hair, Andy. <laughs> they think they're going to get strong, but they keep, they keep getting clothes <laughs> No, Samson. All right, you guys know what kind of person he was? Who he was born as? A Nazarite. All right, so look in verse 5 of chapter 13. It says, For lo, thou shalt, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. You know, people, just as another side note, because I hate Calvinism, uh, you know, people often say, well, look at this. See, God committed this person unto him. He, they were already destined for that successful life. What does the Bible say about Samson here? He shall be a Nazarite unto who? God. Read Samson's life. Does he make a lot of decisions for God? No. That was his purpose. He was called to fulfill a life unto God. But gosh, his life was an absolute wreck. So, eat that Calvinism. Anyways, he was a Nazarite. A set-apart life for service to God. Jump down to chapter 14. Like I said, we're just going to like chop this up fruit ninja this up verse 5 of chapter 14 that was lame then went samson down and his father and his mother to timnath and came to the vineyards of timnath and behold a young lion roared against him and the spirit of the lord came mightily upon him and he rent him as he would have rent a kid and he had nothing in his hand but he told not his father or his mother what he had done man what a ridiculous guy and he went down and talked with the woman and she pleased samson well and after a time he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating, and came to his father and mother, and he gave them, and they did eat. But he told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. That's like a man's man right there, the world's standpoint. You know, sidebar from like the woman pleasing him and all that crap. But Kills a lion with nothing in his hand, rips honey out of this thing, delivers it to his I mean. Dude's not scared of anything. He's got a lot going on right now through God's spirit. Verse 19, chapter 14. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and slew 30 men of them and took their spoil and gave change of garments unto them, which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kindled, and he went up to his father's house. Kills 30 men. I want you guys to see these traits of Samson and really these victories, and and I... Think of these as, again, spaces of grace where God's giving him. You would constantly see the Spirit of the Lord coming unto Samson's life. And who's getting the credit? Who's getting the notoriety here? There's no mention of him giving anything back to God, bringing God into any of this discussion. It's all about Samson. Be very careful when you have successes in your life and you think that it comes from within you. That's what drives me nuts about athletes. That just think, well, you know, I was born six seven, so yeah, I'm just naturally good at basketball. It's because I work hard. No, it's because you're born six seven. You know, there's there's some practice, no doubt, but good grief. You can't train to be a six foot seven monster. God gave you a lot of the God gave you the ability to be able to do what you do. God gave Samson the ability to do what he's doing. Look like in chapter 15, verse 8. Well, I'll start in verse 7. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you. And after that, will I, I will cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And he went down and dwelt in the top of the rock, eat them. So he killed again. Look in verse 15. And he found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it and slew a thousand men therewith. A thousand men with the jawbone of an ass. And Samson said, verse 16, with the jawbone of an ass. I know Brandy's hairs like standing up from the word ass. Heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass, have I slain a thousand men. And it came to pass, when he had made an end of speaking, that he cast away the jawbone out of his hand and called that place Ramathlani. Kills a thousand people. And he heaps, and look at, look at verse 16, though. It says, and Samson said, so he first was quiet when he killed the lion, took the honey. But now, now he's publicizing it. Now he's bragging about it. With the jawbone of an ass, heaps upon heaps, with the jaw of an ass have I slain a thousand men. He's starting to feel pretty good about himself, isn't he? All right, and then look at verse 18. And he was sore athirst, thirst and called on the Lord and said, thou hast given this great deliverance into, thine, into the hand of thy servant. Sounds pretty good, right? He's starting to give some credit to God. Wrong. And now shall I die for thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? God, thanks for doing this, but I need a little more. God, I appreciate this, but I'm only telling you this so that you can give me a little more. But God clave in hollow place that was in the jaw, and there came water there out. And when he had drunk, his spirit came again, and he revived. Wherefore he called the name thereof, Enhakor, which is in Lehi unto this day. Again, another side note, just the grace of God. You got this arrogant punk going around doing all these things in his name, calls upon God, and God is still gracious enough to give him this water. God is still taking care of him and loving him and then we're going to wrap this up in chapter 16 verse 1 then went samson to gaza and saw there in harlot and went in under her so okay god has given him strength to have this victory have these victories have these successes providing for him samson refuses to give any credit where credit is due basically is using god as this selfish lucky charm to say hey god come on can i have some water can you take care of me all these victories that you've given me now i'm going to die of thirst." Look at the decisions that this leads him to make, though. Verse 1, he goes in, sees a harlot, goes in under her. Look at verse 4. It came to pass afterward that he loved another woman, a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And that will be his last woman. And then verse 17, that he told her all his heart. Remember this story with Delilah? She's like, where does your strength come from? The Philistines are trying to get an in and say, where does your strength come from? And it's a riddle and all these things. And he finally tells her. Verse 17, that he told her all his heart. and said unto her, There hath not a razor come upon mine head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. I got news for you. When you don't repent and turn from the sins of this world, this world is going to beat and beat and beat and beat and beat. Delilah did not stop until she got what she wanted. Verse 18, when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up this once, for he hath showed me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up, up up under her and brought money in their hand. And she made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man, and she caused him to shave off the seven locks of his head. And she began to afflict him, and his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as the other time to before and shake myself. And he wist not the Lord was departed from him. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, and he did grind in the prison house. Samson's life, his mission, his purpose was essentially over at this point. He goes on to be between two pillars, and God gives him his strength one more time, and he basically dies by suicide. He gets more glory. God gets more glory out of his death than he ever did out of his life. Don't let that be true with you. You know, I often think of that when people that have lived just a horrible life, whether they knew the the Lord or not, they get more glory, God gets more glory out of their life at the funeral than he ever did while they were breathing. Don't let that be true about you. The difference here, the problem here is, Samson never repented for a single thing in his life. And what does it say about the Lord? He departed from him and practically... Because you don't lose your salvation. The Bible is very clear. Practically, you can sear that conscience. And that conviction can be gone. And it will lead to your death. So two types of repentance. At salvation, are you saved tonight? And then point number two, daily repentance. When you sin, when you have an offense against God, are you very quick to repent and turn from that sin? If you don't, if you're not, whatever it is, don't be prideful. Call sin, sin. It will lead to your death. It will lead you to places that you never thought you would be. So in closing, are you examining yourself daily? We ought to be in the, in the business of examining ourselves daily. It's a great measure of how real your relationship is with Jesus Christ because that will come naturally. He will reveal those things to you in the scriptures. He'll convict your heart. And then the last one, do you have a repentant heart? And that's between you and God. I mean, us leaders, we can speculate and kind of see just based on the decisions you're making, but that is a very personal uh, aspect of your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's really the foundation. Without a repentant heart, you really don't have any intimacy with Jesus Christ. It's the same thing with our kids. When our kids don't have a repentant heart, the fellowship is just kind of bleh. How many of you guys don't raise your hands? How many of you guys in here is your relationship with Jesus just kind of bleh? I would venture to guess it has an issue. You've got an, an issue you need to work out with your repentant heart or lack thereof. So be honest with these things. Talk to God tonight. Talk to a leader tonight. Whatever you need to do to make business so that you can move on from this, have a daily repentant heart. Because this is the foundation. If you can't get past this repentant heart, the rest of the will of, wills that we're going to go through are going to go in one ear and right out the other. All right, let's pray. Father, again, I do thank you for the simplicity that's in your book, for the truths that we have, and just for your patience. I think of Samson in every decision that he did, wrong and wrong and wrong. And, Lord, he came to you selfishly, giving you false credit, although you deserved it all, just for some water. And, God, it's easy for us to read that and think, man, what a jerk. And, God, we do the same thing with you every single day. We take your salvation that you have offered us, Lord, and that we've received, Lord, we take that for granted. Father, I pray that you would convict us. Lord, chastise us, rebuke us quickly and often. Lord, if anybody in here has seared their conscience, Lord, I pray that you would bring it to life tonight. Show them what they need to do. Show them their sinful state so that they can make a 180 and turn unto you. And if there's anyone in here that doesn't know your son, that doesn't put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they would do that. It's as simple as recognizing themselves as a sinner in front of a perfect God destined for hell. The Bible says all we need to do is call upon the Lord Jesus Christ to save us, and we shall be saved. So, Father, again, I thank you for your book. I thank you for this ministry. for pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.